Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Primary Care Podcast. It is your boy, Dr. Mark List. Before we get into today's action, uh, we are going to talk about a joke today. Um, the joke comes from an anonymous listener, as always, at the primarycarepod at gmail.com inbox. That's where you can send me anonymous jokes if you want to. Um, the joke is, uh, Dr. List, I have a joke for you. I don't have a problem if you're trans, and I don't have a problem if you're fat, but if you're a trans fat, I'm going to avoid you. I don't know. That's that's pretty good. All right, let's start the podcast. The Primary Care Podcast is written and edited by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, and medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients and should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast produced on my own time and solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List, here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Well, welcome back to the podcast, Pod Girls, Pod Boys, Pod People. It's your boy, Dr. Mark List. Uh, today's episode is going to be on one of my favorite topics. And I know I say that a lot, but deep prescribing. And specifically, this is an American Gastroenterology Association, I don't know, AGA, American Gastroenterology Association Clinical Practice Update on the deprescribing of PPIs, proton pump inhibitors. And why is this important? Because uh, PPIs are generally safe. Um, patients use them for lots of different reasons. Uh, but the problem is, is that millions and millions of people around the world are taking PPIs that probably should stop. Um, especially uh, there's data that PPI use has increased over time and that up to 15% of the U.S. population at any time is on a PPI with the prevalence increasing to 40% of patients older than 70 years old, which is pretty darn high. Um, Approximately one quarter of all patients who receive a PPI will continue them for at least a year. Um, and certainly we know that PPIs have a lot of uh, PPI-associated adverse events. Um, it's very important that we talk about this, right? Because our patients are hearing more about this and, and we're seeing more and more of this data come out that as people are on these for decades, um, that it definitely increases or is associated with an increase um, uh, adverse events. Um, again, potentially linked to chronic kidney disease, uh, increased fracture risk associated to dementia, associated to worsening risk for pneumonia and even COVID, right? And now none of these have been specifically causal, causally linked, but um, certainly there is definitely some association in many retrospective uh, trials, never in randomized control trials, um, but definitely in some retrospective observational analysis. So this is an article that is expert opinion-based. So again, um, what do we say about expert opinion-based? Well, that's not even evidence, um, but it is definitely something we should consider. And in a topic like this, where there is not a lot of data, um, we'll get into what sparse data there is, having a good conversation with uh, specialists or experts, I think at least gives us a starting point on where to work uh, with our patients. So number one, the best practice advice from the AGA based on this guideline update. And I think the guideline update was here was in April. Yep. So uh, uh, April 2020, or sorry, April 2022. So just here recently in the last two months, uh, all patients taking a PPI should have regular review of the ongoing indications for use and documenting of that documentation of that indication. 
this review should be the responsibility of the patient's PCP. Uh, again, uh, clearly not the responsibility of the patient's gastroenterologist, uh, but definitely uh, in our wheelhouse as PCP falling back onto us. Now, why is that important? Obviously, we should be in control of this. Uh, as PCP, we see the patients the most frequently, and we should at least know why the patients are taking their medicines. And in, in what happens a lot of the time is that patients are started on a PPI in the hospital, in the nursing home, or for an acute event, or due to some ongoing issues, and then it gets just continued in perpetuity. And so number two, the best practice advice is just that. All patients without a definitive indication for chronic PPI use should be considered for trial of deprescribing. Very, very, very important. Now we're going to get into what are these definitive indications are or are not, um, but I think that anybody who is not clear why they are taking this, and whether it's even just for, oh, I have some heartburn, um, regular heartburn by itself, even GERD, uh, doesn't necessarily... Um, doesn't necessarily mean that you can't try these patients off of the medication, and we'll get into that here in the future best practice advice. So number three, uh, most patients with an indication for chronic PPI use. So these are people that have a definitive indication. So they they value they are they get some value from it. There is some there is some indication for it. Who take twice daily or high dosing should be considered for step down to once daily or lower dose PPI. I'm kind of uh, importing those uh, my own words into that. But people that that are on a twice daily PPI or that are on high dose PPI um, should be considered to be at a lower dose. So deprescribing does not even necessarily mean removing the PPI, but deprescribing can also mean reducing the dose to as low as possibly needed. Again, reducing the risk for chronic kidney disease, reducing the risk for pneumonia, reducing the risk for developing fractures or osteoporosis, et cetera, that have been linked to PPI use. Uh, best practice number four. So what are those indications that uh, should prevent a patient from being uh, discontinued on their PPI or even trialed? Number one is complicated GERD. Right, so those with severe erosive esophagitis, okay, if they've had complicated GERD that presents with an ulcer or a stricture, a peptic stricture should generally not be discontinued on a PPI. Those should probably be lifelong. Generic GERD, though, without a history of erosis, erosive, erosive esophagitis, an ulcer or stricture. Scripture, stricture um, should not be deprescribed. But for the majority of cases of GERD, that means that we can try to deprescribe them. So really, these are only three indications, uh, complications of GERD that have probably been witnessed on EGD or at least um, found in some way, not just, oh, I assume that they had an ulcer. It could have just been, uh, you know, GERD that was causing enough of their symptoms. So best practice number five, patients with known Barrett's esophagus known eosinophilic esophagitis or known idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis should generally not be considered for trial of deprescribing. And so the first one was really um, uh, more of a um, more of a do not put these people on uh, PPI discontinuation. This one, Barrett's and, and idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, there's good data that PPI use should be continued. Eosinophilic esophagitis is actually a really interesting topic. I've been reading a lot more because I have a couple of recently diagnosed patients with this, and I've been uh, reading more about uh, some of the trials to give them better advice. And I will tell you that the data is pretty clear that about 70, 80% of people 
will eventually need to be back on a PPI if they trial off it, again, depending on the significance of their eosinophilic esophagitis. But there are a large amount of people in um, that are finding their dietary triggers for eosinophilic esophagitis, and there are a lot of people that can control their symptoms without a swallowed inhaled corticosteroid or without a PPI. Um, again, we can have that conversation uh, at a later date with some of those, those topics, but those are patients that if they're diet-controlled eosinophilic esophagitis probably can trial off a PPI. Otherwise, if there is no known um, or no definitive dietary fix for them, uh, a PPI is probably going to be in their long-term best interest. Again, as low dose as possible. Uh, best practice advice number six is probably the most complicated out of all of these. Um, PPI users should be assessed for upper GI bleeding risk using an evidence-based strategy before deprescribing. Okay, so in the guidelines, right, they just give you all the best practice advice, and then you have to scroll down in the article uh, to the individual topic to get more evidence-based uh, content or to get more details. When you scroll down for best practice advice number six, which recommends using an evidence-based strategy to de-prescribe for people, there is, there is nothing listed because there are no evidence-based GI bleeding risk calculators. If you look on uh, MD Calc, there's a couple AIMS 65, the Forest Classification, the HasBled score, the Glasgow Blatchford bleeding score. But none of those are people that have a history of GI bleed. The GBS, the, the Glasgow Blatchford bleeding score, is people who have an active upper GI bleed who are candidates for outpatient management. The AIM-65 is about inpatient management. The HasBled is, is a risk score based on if they can be on a blood thinner for anticoagulation. So none of these evidence-based uh, risk scores are actually uh, for you know your generic outpatient, uh, well controlled, no active bleeding, um, has these prior indications, right? These that are using PPIs. Uh, so this best practice number six asks us or recommends using an evidence-based strategy. But guess what? There <laughs> there isn't one that I can find uh, that I that I know of, and it's not even listed here. So yeah, good job, uh, AGA. Uh, best practice advice number seven. Patients at risk for upper GI bleeding should not be considered for PPI de-prescribing. So again, probably uh, risk factors for upper GI bleeding, meaning uh, aspirin use, anticoagulation use, um, chronic NSAID use. They actually get into some of these, uh, chronic NSAID use, prior upper GI bleeding, antiplatelet aspirin use, dual antiplatelets uh, for stroke, atrial fibrillation, or anybody on antithrombotics. Um, basically should not be considered for de-prescribing. Um, yeah, it, it's uh, it, very, very interesting. Um, but uh, uh, I think that um, I've had many patients who have had a prior history of GI bleeding um, who I have de-prescribed their PPI and they've done well. I've had uh, older patients that have had upper GI bleeds who I've discontinued their anticoagulation, um, have not had a bleed, and then I stopped their PPI, and then they get another GI bleed. I'm dealing with one right now who that's happening to, who's having recurrent GI bleeds, and so I had to put him back on his PPI. Um, but again, something to discuss 
and have a conversation about with people with a history of upper GI bleeding, whether or not their PPI is now for life. Um, again, in many cases, I think it's okay to trial off it, but having a conversation that it can be risky. Uh, best practice advice. Number eight, patients who discontinue long-term PPI therapy should be advised. And this is really key for us as primary care providers. So we're stopping their PPI, discontinuing it, lowering it. We should tell patients that they may develop transient upper GI symptoms due to rebound acid hypersecretion. So there's a lot of data here, and I'm not going to get into all the studies in this section because there are many of them that have gone through this. And half of patients, even with uncomplicated GERD, who discontinued PPIs, uh, they were able to remain off their PPIs at six months, but 75% of them had to use as needed H2 blockers or antacids like Tums, um, et cetera, for symptom control. Because many of them in the first seven days of PPI withdrawal have an elevated, have increased abnormal esophageal acid exposures when they do the actual um, acid testing. So a, a large majority of pe people have symptoms on discontinuation, but that discontinuation they should try to tolerate it for two months. But if anything lasting longer, any of that hypersecretion symptoms lasting longer than two months should then probably be on chronic PPI indication, okay? Now, from seven days, within the first seven days, they should know if they have this hypersecretion, this rebound hypersecretion. In the first seven days, they should be able to know. But then the education is, you're probably gonna have it. If you don't have it within the first seven days, you're probably not gonna have it. Don't worry about it, you're okay to be off it. If you have an increase in symptoms, use a PPI, use Tums or other you know, over-the-counter antacids, and then try to bear it out, try to deal with it for the first two months. If you can make it to two months without having to be back on your PPI, you're probably not gonna need your PPI at least long-term. Uh, advice number nine, when deprescribing, you either use dose tapering or abrupt discontinuation. <clears throat> so uh, there is, no, <laughs> I don't know why this is the best practice advice, but basically when you deprescribe, uh, you can go to a lower dose. And again, if the patients can't tolerate going all the way off, at least de-escalating their dose from twice a day or, or high dose down to lower dose can be considered, that's, that is deprescribing. But if you're completely deprescribing them off, you can try to taper them off. So if they're on a PPI daily going to every other day or just discontinuing cold turkey, the studies are pretty clear that there is not a ton of difference between the two of those sources. So if people ask your opinion, whatever the patient's preference is, uh, either way. Um, their suggestion, again, this is evidence, this is not evidence-based, this is expert recommendation. At this time, we suggest that tapering or abrupt discontinuation are both reasonable. In either case, patients should be advised to be mindful in developing recurrent symptoms as a consequence of withdrawal basically and hypersecretion and should try to manage with lower potency options. Okay, just basically what I just said. Okay, and last but not least, advice number 10. The, the decision to discontinue PPIs should not, should, nah, 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 let me restart. The decision to discontinue should be solely based on the lack of an indication for PPI use and not because of a concern for PPI associated adverse events. So the experts are saying that the reason for discontinuation should not be because of fear of adverse events. The reason for discontinuation should only be because the patient has a lack of indication for clear long-term PPI use. 
I actually disagree with this recommendation and I think I'm okay because I'm not an expert and uh, no one's going to sue me for having a different expert opinion or having a non-expert based opinion on this. But I think it's very reasonable that, um, and here they try to downplay the use of PPI-associated adverse events um, and try to say that they're not causal and that they can be explained in these studies by a residual confounding or other analytical biases and that there's been, some of them don't even have a plausible mechanisms, for example, like the dementia link. And no randomized control trial has ever indicated that PPI users have an increased instance of any of these PPI-associated adverse events. I actually very much disagree with this, that I think that having conversations about the risks is important and that this is patient-centered decision-making where we have a dyad communication back and forth. And I say, hey, here are the risks of this medicine. We can discontinue. We can slow down the dose. Um, he, here are your risks if we if we stop it. And if patients have any clear indication for prolonging that use, then we should discontinue it. And if the patient does have a indication to be on it for a chronic period of time, having a conversation about the risks and benefits matters for the patient because if the patient feels like those potential risks outweigh the benefits that they are currently perceiving, it is very much a a decision, a, a decision that can be made between the primary care provider and the patient. Here, this best practice advice has absolutely no patient-centered foundation to it. It is all based on the provider knowing what is best for the patient. And in this case, I would very much argue that I think it's very much in the patient's best interest to have these conversations because I think that, you know, having a clear, open, and truthful dialogue with your patients is far better than the potential risks for patients being off their PPIs, as long as we have a conversation that if you're having return of symptoms, you need to come back. So this has been a good review, I think, of de-escalation and de-prescribing of PPIs. I think it's an incredibly important topic. We see PPIs prescribed forever and ever for no clear indication. I think this is a a um, a, a very good medication to de-prescribe, especially in older patients, especially if there is no clear indication. And if you can't see a clear indication, a discontinuing in a trial is always important. Remember, when you do discontinue that medication, you can step down it. Uh, you can just co quit cold turkey. Um, either one is okay. But remember to always educate the patient that um, likely in the next seven days after discontinuing, they're going to have breakthrough symptoms. If they do, they can use over-the-counter H2 blockers. They can use over-the-counter antacids. Um, and then they should try to stay off it for two months. If they can't tolerate it, that's okay. They can get back on it. But at doing our best, at least trial it and then documenting the chart or the problem list um, or on the medication itself, you know, unable to de-prescribe, needs to be chronic. I think these are all good things to have conversations with patients. I think having a patient-centered discussion where you together as a dyad are making a choice, in my opinion, is far better than the expert opinion of, I'm going to decide if the patient should or should not be on it. Um, and I think that this is something we should continuously have conversations about on a yearly basis at a yearly physical or yearly medical annual Medicare annual wellness exam. Whoa, I am way over time today. Um, I actually have a meeting that was supposed to start three minutes ago, so I definitely needed to shut up. I didn't even look at my clock until just now. Um, I'm supposed to be at a uh, physician meeting with my partners. Okay, um, so I'm going to shut up. I'm going to wrap up for this week, and then um, hopefully you tune in next week for another episode of the Primary Care Podcast. This is your boy, Dr. Mark List, signing off. Reminder, you don't need to stay up all night to stay up to date. Thanks, and have a great week.